Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about design in fintech and in shortech. Uh, we all know great products in this industry and the way in which they look and feel makes us love them or not. But what are really the practices behind that? Who are behind those sleek products? And how does gamification speak to its users, really? But before we start with that, we want to tell you a few things that we're up to at 11FS and have a quick hear from our sponsors as well. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Okay, let's get started then. As always, I'm not alone, but today I'm joined by Lindsay Kistler, who is Director of Product at 11FS Pulse. How's it going today, Lindsay? It's going great, David. Thanks a lot. I'm very excited to be on the show for the first time. We were just saying, weren't we, uh, it's been a year, like over a year, and you haven't still been at the 11FS office because there's this pesky pandemic. But uh, I'm sat in the 11FS office right now, but uh, but we still haven't met face-to-face, have we? Yeah, unfortunately not yet, but I'm counting down the days. It's a, it's a weird, weird world. But uh, as always, we're, we're joined by some super duper awesome guests uh, making his FinTech Insider debut. We have Dominic Holton, COO of Dead Happy. How's it going, Dominic? Uh, yeah, pretty good, I think, David. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. No worries. Loving what you guys are doing. Loving the branding. Like I feel like, uh, I feel like this is going to get into a real good, uh, a real good conversation with you as, uh, uh, on this topic. Yeah, cool. Thank you. No worries. And also making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Eduardo Moreni, who is a co-founder and CEO of Emma. How are you doing today, Eduardo? I'm doing fine. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Just a bit jet lagged. I got back from Siberia last night, so I'll try to be as sharp as possible. You got back from where? Siberia? Siberia, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's not your typical holiday destination. So uh, um, uh, I'm going to have to ask before we get going. Um, was that a, like a visiting family type trip or what was the... Yes. Yes. My girlfriend is actually from uh, Novosibirsk. So it's the third largest city in Russia. But it's definitely, you know, it took me 24 hours to get back to the UK. So it was like a long uh, journey. Well, let's hope we keep this conversation uh, uh, upbeat and keep you awake then, uh, which is good. Uh, all right. Well, um, to get us going, we're going to talk a little bit about designing in the context. Uh, and within fintech and insurtech, I mean, this is something that organizations are really good at doing. But maybe starting a little bit with the the, the basics. I mean, you're, you're both invited here today because the design of your products really stands out, you know, I should say between Dead Happy and and Emma, and actually, Lindsay, for that, for that matter, the, the work that you guys do on, on 11FS Pulse as well. I mean, maybe Eduardo, starting with it, can you describe a little bit the look and feel of, of your companies? How do, you, how do you manifest that out? 
Yes, of course. Like, you know, we, we launched the company like three years ago as a money management app. And before even starting, we realized that we had to look different to make a point and actually to attract uh, people via curiosity and word of mouth. And so we designed Emma as a joke, pretty much. Uh, it looks like a toy. Uh, the logo is a gummy bear. Uh, the app is completely like colorful. Uh, it says funny things and it plays constantly with the user by nudging them. And for us, that's been one of the main reasons why we've gained uh, traction and momentum and why we've, you know, sort of like built our own mini brand in the financial space, which, you know, is still like day one for us, but definitely having a completely different look that's helped us a lot in the, in the early days. Yeah. And I'll come back to a, a lot of things on that because having having established that type of brand, having established that type of hierarchy, you can you can actually use it to have different types of conversations with the consumers. But we'll come on we'll come on to that in a um, uh, in a second. Uh, I mean Dominic, same question to you really. I mean, what was really the 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 ethos behind the brand or how how was it established? Because that is really I guess what we're seeing coming through. I mean, it's not it's not the typical thing to have a laugh about, is it? You know, the uh, the the life insurance side of things. So how how did that come about? Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. And and I think having a life insurance brand called Dead Happy kind of tells you a lot about kind of what we're trying to achieve, I suppose, with, with the brand and the product. So I guess it came about from some pretty poor experiences within the industry. So the co-founders basically both had, you know, experience with trying to buy life insurance or, or whatever. And I just found that the process completely bizarre and, and you know, just this, just so many things that we wanted to fix. Basically, I guess in terms of the design of of what we've we've kind of set up, life insurance is is essentially a form filling exercise, um, and it's a pretty dry and morbid one. You know, it's a really, really long and, and quite difficult application process. And what we're trying to do is is just breathe a little bit more life into that. Really, so focusing kind of more on why people want the product rather than the process of applying for it. So we don't ask customers, you know, how much cover do you want, which is typically one of the first questions you'll get, you'll get asked when you're, when you're looking for life insurance. We ask people, what do you want to happen when you die? Which is the same question, but in, in from a very different angle. And then we have these things called death wishes, which help people to answer that question. Because it's a pretty tough question to answer. You, know, you don't walk up in the street to someone and say, what do you want to happen when you die? And they instantly know the answer. You, know, you kind of have to prompt people to, to think about this thing and and, and kind of framing life insurance like that, it, it, it makes it a very different conversation. You know, we have death wishes, you know, the obvious practical stuff like paying off the mortgage, paying for the funeral. But we have more emotional stuff as well, which people wouldn't necessarily think about when they think about life insurance. So it might be kind of sending the family off on that holiday of a lifetime or, you know, giving a gift to a loved one, planning a wake party, you know, all sorts of stuff um, that people can, can effectively do. And, you know, they can create their own death wishes. They can add as much or as little detail as they want. And that is the starting process for, for life insurance. And it, it just completely changes, you know, the whole relationship, I think, with the product. No longer do you have this piece of paper that just sits in a drawer somewhere with a number on it. Actually, there's a more emotional connection because you've spent some time thinking about why you want it and what you want to happen. So from a design perspective, I guess it's it's just a lot more visual, a lot more human and a lot more of a personal experience. And then obviously, you know, we're called Dead Happy. So there's an element of humor in there. 
you know, as you say, death is, death is not a comfortable topic for most people. So, so that little bit of humour hopefully makes it a bit easier for people to tackle. I mean, I definitely prefer to put it off if I could do, but um, but it's we know it's an eventuality at some point, don't we? But I think there's there's a few things in that, as you say. I mean, I um, I had the pleasure of building the first life insurance straight through process in the UK when I worked at Aviva. And um, what we did was we focused very much on, it was awful, like tr- truly awful in terms of like the process beforehand. There was 87,000 pieces of paper. Um, I mean, it was a straight through process at the time, but but it was focused on selling the product. We had Ross Kemp advertise it, being all geezery on some adverts about like, look after your family and stuff, you know, like very much like that. That was my Cockney accent, by the way, just in case you're, you're wondering about it. I, I, if I've offended any Cockneys out there, I do apologize uh, off, off the bat, but that's what Ross Kemp sounds like to me. Um, so being in that situation, it was about the emotional sort of bar to, to get people to think about just buying the product. But to your point, actually, and we say this a, a lot at 11FS, the move towards services and actually that ongoing engagement, that service, I mean, you don't plan for your death once and then be like, cool, that's done, like I'll walk away. But but to your point around the, the normalization of the conversation, I mean, how much did you guys think about the almost, um, you know, you've got to be provocative to change something essentially, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our, our, our purpose, which was kind of from the start, obviously, was all about changing people's attitude to death. And and you don't change people's attitudes by doing the same thing that everyone else has, has always done. Um, you know, I think it, it's probably possible to buy a life insurance policy and 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 never come across the D word. So, you know, we we have to we have to do things differently. And you know, we're not for everybody, that's that's for sure. You know, not everybody likes our take on on death. You know, not everyone wants to to have that level of frivolity about it. But that's fine. There's plenty of providers out there that serve those people's needs. I guess we're just there to offer an alternative to people who who find that very inaccessible. And and there's lots of elements I think of, of life insurance that are inaccessible. Still, the majority of life insurance products are sold through financial advisors, and there's just a whole load of people that would never consider themselves wealthy enough to walk into a financial advisor's office. You know, so so the way that they are traditionally distributed just kind of rules out a whole load of people from from being able to access them. So by taking this very different approach, we're, we're hoping that we're introducing the product. And it is, you know, ultimately, we think it's a good product. We wouldn't be selling it if we didn't. You know, it's introducing a whole load of new people to this product, which which we think has a, has a lot of benefits for people. Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, wealthy enough, but also, uh, I mean, Eduardo, to, to what you guys do as well, like confident enough to actually have those conversations, right? So, I mean, how, how much when you guys were sort of looking at, branding, looking at design and looking at interfaces for Emma, how, how much did that sort of, you know, it's not, it's not dumbing it down. It's talking like normal human beings, isn't it? Yes, of course. Like, you know, when we were thinking about the product at the beginning, we came down, it came down actually to two words. Uh, one was like playground and one was like progress, right? Playground, it's very easy. Like if you just go on Google and you type playground, the first image you would, you would see like a spark full of like toys, super colorful where kids go there and play. And growth and progress was about, you know, money management, right? Uh, you wouldn't manage your money or look at your money on a daily basis if you're not there to actually improve and um, invest in, in your future. And so when you look at the app, uh, yes, we use the playground in terms of like colors, tone of voice, language, and many other aspects in the product. Uh, when you look at progress, it's all related about, you know, graphs, and progress is expressed in forms of like, you know, 
progress bars or like events to build on top, like, you know, a simple like savings goal. But I still believe that, you know, for us, that was more like a way to break into the space. There is definitely like a design that you can use to go from like zero to 100,000, 200,000 or even like a million. But then to go to a million to 20 million, uh, you know, you need to like sort of like normalize yourself in a way or another. I think like one of the best examples like that is probably Revolut. Uh, you know, when they launched the app, it was like four or five years ago. I uh, had all these like sort of like gradients. It was very like uh, colorful and um, and interesting. And now they've sort of like normalized the product to, you know, this sort of like plain white that anyone can understand and, and use. So I can definitely see like um, an evolution of the product in the future. Uh, but definitely to start with is really exciting and interesting to put on the market something that, you know, no one has done before, uh, mm. just to create the sort of like um, ice-breaking moment or like wove moment of like <laughs> using the app the first time. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Lindsay, we, we sort of see in the market and not just in the UK market, but in every market right now, just such a an explosion of competition in all of the, these different spaces. So, I mean, how much do you think that is the, then the case that almost the beachhead for any organization has to really stand out. Absolutely. I mean, in, in Pulse, we kind of have this like privileged vantage point on the industry and watching all the products come in as we evaluate the designs and everything gives us this perspective. And like design is so important to every new product. It's, it's almost like design along with brand is one of the best opportunities that any new product has to kind of short circuit the beginning stages of the product journey to communicate all of those like emotional triggers, all of those feelings that, you know, basically helps the user get through that whole first introduction part to what the product is without sometimes even saying a word, you know, it can just be an image or a color or something like that, which is, um, which is so massive in, in a crowded field and in a field where there's, you know, a lot of change and a lot of innovation, like Dominic said, like getting people to really change their mind about a difficult topic or to get them to think differently about it. Like, you know, you don't get a lot of shots to, to do that. And, you know, getting, getting in there quickly, even just with the name of the brand, this is massively a speedy way to do that. And, you know, I think that what we see in Pulse is the brands that are the most effective at, at conveying their meaning quickly is, are the ones that really marry the design up to the core of, of what they're doing all the way down. Yeah. And, and I think to, to touch on that, point as well and, and maybe moving beyond just branding but actually into you know broader interfaces i mean actually i mean this is not a um it's art and science do you know what i mean mm-hmm. actually great interface development is as much about understanding the psychology of the the people that you're trying to influence to do something and actually, I mean, I don't know why we all choose to work in financial services because it's difficult. You know what I mean? Like nobody nobody wants to engage with understanding where their finances are. Nobody wants to engage with difficult conversations about their their death or, I mean, even like a raft of other things that sort of sit inside financial services. So, I mean, how, how much do you think that that sort of psychology of uh, of understanding your customers, Lindsay, and, and getting into that psyche helps people then start uh, gearing services that are really specifically catered towards them. I, I mean, it's it's essential, really. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like it's like death and taxes. You know, money is is amongst the most important thing. It's, it's the most important thing in your life that you're not thinking about, right? I, f- I feel like Dominic. That's a um, you've done death. 
you're going to do taxes next, aren't you? Because <laughs> yeah, I can see in, on that product roadmap, it, it just fits from a branding perspective. You've got to do it. Sure. All, of, all of those inevitable things. But um, no, it's, it's absolutely essential. I mean, partly, you know, you said, why are we in this business? And it's like, I think, I think anyone who's innovating in the space is really there because we see how, how important it is. You know, the, there's obviously huge opportunity in the space, but it's, the opportunities there because these are such massively essential life things. And, you know, it's kind of so obvious. It doesn't almost need to be said, but it is, it is so sorry, Dominic, dead serious for everybody to get these things right, you know, for their lives they're, they're on, on the ground for their families. And like, and I think like being able to lighten that with, with playful design, with effective marketing and brand and stuff is, is like both fun and playful, but it's also like, at the same time, so serious and so important. And that's kind of like what we see, you know, time and time again, the most successful products are the ones that tread that line and, and combine those things together. Yeah. And and one way, I, I guess, I mean, many industries, not just financial services, but one, you know, many other industries have, have tried to do is almost gamifying the engagement process to, you know, the, the sort of nudges to to bring people in, to engage with it, to uh, experience it without it being a, um, uh, you know, a, a real difficult grudge, you know, sit down and be serious for an hour, children, and we'll teach you about financial services. So, I mean, uh, tell us a little bit more about gamification in the first place. Maybe, Eduardo, starting with you. How has this sort of come about and, and how applicable do you think it is in the financial services sense? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, when we were building the app probably two years ago, it was like, yeah, probably two years ago, we, we were looking at like an app that's called like um, Seven Days Light Challenge or Seven Days Fitness, which is like a fitness app full of like quests and badges that you can unlock if you reach certain goals. And we thought that that was like a super cool idea and we just put it into like a financial app. In our case, the goal wasn't just like about gamifying to, uh, you know, create more engagement was actually more to create more retention, right? Because we are a consumer product that you open like every day to manage your money. And the more you stay, you know, the better you will perform in, in the long run. And so we really took all the core actions that we needed people to uh, take in order to retain more. And we put them behind like some like quests and challenges. And so if the user uh, completes the quest, we lock a badge, we congratulate the users and we go back to the users with like a push notification. And it's all based on really like really uh, getting to a point where you got one, a full understanding of your finances, but also like a full understanding of uh, the product. Because, uh, you know, for us, it was also like the case of like, okay, let's build this product, let's add 15 new features in. And then users, they download, sign up, and then they only use one or two or don't understand the other, like 13. Because, you know, it's a cause of problem for, with the design, but also because the product, as we grow, it becomes more and more like complex. Um, you know, even when you get like a typical banking app, you would see like 45 different features and you wouldn't know where to touch or um, what to do. And so I think that this was our first main attempt and is the most like long-standing one. Last year, we did another attempt, which was like a massive launch that was rolled out across the whole user basis. And we actually shut it down after like two months. And it was all, uh, it was called like gummy bears. So we were giving like a virtual coin to every single user that was um, doing certain actions. Like if you uh, open the app two times a day, we give you uh, some points. If you add uh, three accounts, we give you more points. And the whole goal was that they could use the points to actually, you know, uh, buy or purchase 
um, some items from our store. So we're giving like PlayStation 5, AirPods, or a few other like, um, you know, opportunities there. Um, it definitely didn't work in the way we expected, but I think that there is like an opportunity to go back to it. But definitely on our side, we're always constantly pushing and seeing and trying to put in the product like things that are completely unrelated to financial services, uh, simply because, you know, when you look at it, money management is a boring thing that most of us don't want to do. And we need to give you a reason to actually perform those actions on a day-to-day basis. It's difficult, isn't it? There's a there's a real fine line behind. Um, I mean, we we will sort of say. I mean, it's like anything, right? You you want to incentivize the behaviours that lead to the right outcome, and actually, by doing that, do people just get obsessed with those behaviours rather than the outcome? And it's difficult, isn't it? Humans are weird and wonderful things, aren't they? They'll do very bizarre things that you didn't expect them to when you put a product in their hands, which is uh, that's why testing is always so uh, so entertaining, isn't it? But um, I think it's interesting with the gamification one, and I've had kind of lots of conversations with um uh you know bank ceos with it it's like kids love computer games can't we make financial services fun like computer games and it's like it's not how it works you know like uh are you not going to get that level of engagement in order to you know make financial services fun and really making financial services fun isn't really the aim it's about making it digestible you know and uh, i think dominic to your point uh, before around the you know, do I have enough money to engage with this thing? Or do I have enough intelligence to in- engage with these things? You want to break it down to a human level where anybody can understand these complex subject matters because, you know, actually, you know, whether you're buying, you know, protection for your loved ones or whether you're buying protection for your car or whether you're buying, you know, these are complex concepts that actually if you explain them to financial services people, you do it in a different world than you would do if you were talking to your mum. So, I mean, what what do you think about gamification? Is that something that has influenced your thinking in terms of the way in which you design your product? I mean, I don't I don't think so, to be honest. I think gamification lends itself more to to products that have a, a fairly frequent interaction, and obviously, life insurance is is one of the financial products uh, with the least interaction that you can have. You know, typically, like traditional establishment brands, they'll 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 sell you a policy that lasts for 25 years and and hope to never talk to you ever again. It's it's a sort of a it's a single claims policy, isn't it really? You know, there's exactly. a, you, you yeah. struggle with yeah. multiple claims on it, but yeah. So so the only interaction you have obviously is is the is the cash leaving your your bank account every month. Um you know, I guess we we've talked about maybe there is an, a, a role to play for gamification in in kind of encouraging retention because you know, life insurance is is probably one of the first things that you under financial stress, you think actually, what value am I getting out of this? But you know, it, it, we still believe it's a very important product, and I guess that kind of speaks to to how we frame it in the first place. Is is you know, it's not a piece of paper sitting in a drawer that you don't see any value attached to. It's it's these kind of death wishes that you have this emotional connection with, and you know, we we don't want to sell someone a policy and and for them to disappear and never talk to them ever again. We want to have regular interaction with them, but how regular can that really be you know we don't we don't expect people to to want to think about their death every day or every week or anything but but maybe once a year or something is is good enough so you know we want we want to be constantly not constantly but annually checking in with with customers uh, and just making sure that you know their death wishes are still relevant for them that their life hasn't changed that their their lifestyle hasn't changed you know that would would potentially you know there are things that happen in people's lives that that mean 
the cost of life insurance could come down like you know if you give up smoking or or if you had this illness five years ago which is no longer affecting you actually your price could come down so so we want customers to be able to benefit from those kind of stuff so you know it's not really gamification as such but um you know there's certain some kind of element of that kind of frequency of interaction that that we want to build into our product i suppose yeah sort of reinforcement of meaning isn't there isn't that in that uh, and almost the yeah, emotional triggers that have created the the feeling of needing the type of product reinforcing those things makes a great deal of sense uh, i mean lindsay you must have seen lots of different uh, attempts at gamification within the the financial sense but i mean how, how do you sort of feel about it more broadly because I mean, it, gamification is not a thing in isolation, is it? It's not like a, we're building this feature just purely for gamification's purposes. It actually sort of folds into a, a broader set of capabilities that people have at their fingertips, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing that jumps to my mind, and you and I were talking on Slack about this, I think just yesterday, was the Google Doodle for the Olympics mm. of the little video game, you know, and you start out as a cat and you go skateboarding and everything. And it's, it, it was really fun, first of all. But also, it, it was just... It reminded me of it because I was thinking like games and video games, especially at this point in time, have such a strong visual language. It's almost like there were no instructions when you started that Google Doodle. People understand how to do video games now. And it's, I was thinking about how that applies to our kinds of um, fintech and insurtech digital products. It's like you don't necessarily have to build a game to use the metaphors from games, especially video games in a digital product. There's like this whole established set of patterns of like discovery and even the illusion of points or doing different things that mean that you can kind of lean on that visual language that that established visual language to kind of lead people into a really natural kind of product discovery and the best products that do it do that in a way that both engage people but also brings them and and helps expose them to products that are better for them and bring them more value or more benefits. Mm. I think there's there's definitely something in that. I'm going to go really off off topic here in terms of the the <laughs> the, the view of, of what we're talking about but but I think there is something dramatic, really significant in that which is I mean great design and great experiences are, are really a balancing act between the rational and the emotional. Mm. Like from a rational perspective Amazon would just be a big list do you know what I mean? But actually, the the pictures of things is an emotional trigger. And actually, you know, um, websites used to be, I mean, I remember, um, I think it was version three or version four of, of Viva's, the, the website, the first website they ever had, basically looked like a Where's Wally picture. And actually, different things were in it. And you clicked on the relevant thing, rather than being a structured hierarchy of a, uh, you know, a navigational structure and all of these different things. I mean, it was crazy when you look back on it. But it was more of an emotional place for branding to be executed. I mean, I mean, Dominic, that that sort of practical, everybody can find everything and it's easy, or that rational, there's an experience and it's a branded experience, like getting that equilibrium or getting that that balancing act between those two things must be, particularly for a brand that has such a, um, a, a um, distinct visual identity, that actually must be quite a difficult balance to get sometimes. Um, I mean, I think it is. You know, we we do have both kind of emotional and rational elements to our proposition. You know, we we have the death wishes that I, I talked about, where you know you, you're trying to encourage people to think about what they want to happen when they die, and you know that that's a very emotional type um, conversation to have with a customer. But at the same time, we do still need certain amount of information to assess the risk. 
so that we can decide whether or not we can we can insure these people so there's that rational element of it as well so you know we kind of need to do both i guess we we kind of borrow from the thinking that the brain has a couple of different states that it can operate in with the first state being you know fast and and kind of intuitive um, and that's where the brain wants to stay because it's easy to stay there but it can make mistakes um or there's the other system of thinking, which is it's more lo- more logical, but but much more harder work and, and slow slow moving. Um, and we want to keep customers in that first state as much as possible. When you're doing the difficult rational stuff, you want to make it feel easy, even if it isn't easy. You want to make it feel easy. So, uh, I mean, a good example of this, I suppose, is is from our sector, life insurance. You know, there's there's often lots and lots of things that we need to ask you. Um, in order to assess the risk and and what i've seen lots of life insurers do is is compound their questions so they throw lots of information into a single question because they want to reduce the number of questions that you that you have to answer but what that means is actually the customer's got to consider a number of different dimensions when answering one question so to give you an example have you in the last five years ever suffered from any of these illnesses and then a whole list of different illnesses there's three things you've got to consider there it's like have i had them had it has it been in the last five years and i've got to go through all the different list of illnesses that's pretty difficult so your brain's immediately switched to that that second mode and and starts to feel difficult so our approach to that is is just to ask one element at a time you know so you know have you had anything wrong with you was it in the last two years what was it you know that's just the same question effectively but just framed in a very different way so that actually the brain doesn't have to move into that more difficult mode, if you like. So we use that throughout our, our website when doing the, the rational stuff and, and hopefully kind of maintain that kind of connection with the customer, you know, that hopefully we've built through the emotional side of stuff and then by making the rational stuff feel, feel quite easy. So that's how we do it. But yeah, um, I think it is difficult for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we often say, I mean, the difference between digitized and digital, you know, a digitized form is just all the stuff on the form that a person would have read to you one to one and, you know, just putting all that on the form and going, yeah, fill this stuff out, you know, but actually the interface between the piece of paper and the customer would have been a person asking the questions one by one, exactly as you've just described, right? So what would be the digital element of that? Well, it's it's asking questions in an empathetic way. It's doing it in a human tone. It's engaging one by one and not overcoming people's brain with those things. So it's, it's funny. It's, I, what I love about a, a good design much more broadly is the rationale for it when you say it out loud just seems obvious. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, we know this common sense is not particularly common, is it? But, I mean, where, where does this sort of stray over the line, though? Because, I mean, there's um, a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with a, an executive at a bank, and they were like, you know, we're really struggling with engagement. You know, we measure how many times people frequently log into the banking app, you know, and we really want to increase it. And I, and I said, it's like, look, if you just put cryptocurrency on, I'll log in like 15 times a day to find out whether XRP is ever going to do anything. You know what I mean? So you can solve that problem. But I guess, Eduardo, back to your point before is almost the knock-on effect of the, the you, you sort of, you might measure that thing, but that thing might not be the right thing to engage the customers in the way that they need to be, right? It's funny you said that because, yes, we're putting crypto in Emma. <laughs> 
well, your engagement's going to go through the roof, but like whether it means anything. <laughs> no, but again, it really goes back to what you're aiming to for. Like, you know, what, what is your like main metric? Is a number of sessions a day a good metric to measure for you? Um, in a typical financial product, like um, a banking app, that's definitely not a good metric. I would assume that the best metric for you is like number of payments done uh, per day or per week. And definitely, you know, if you're not able to define those core metrics and on a high level, like a North Star metric, so the metric that everyone should focus on, uh, you would fail at building your product, right? And so, you know, when you look at even like number of questions on a form for life insurance, for me, it's really always like metrics based, could be five questions, could be one. But, you know, if people don't go through the funnel or if they don't retain after like two, three, four months, uh, you've got a problem and you need to change it, right? And you can make all sorts of like uh, assumptions in that, right? In, in our case, we thought that emotional was like a great way to start. And then we found out that sometimes even by misplacing like uh, an emoji in the product or a type of message that creates churn or it creates hate. And, you know, we would get all these like sorts of like tweets, messages and replies about this emoji plays in that position that makes people feel insecure about the product or they don't trust the product. And so definitely really it goes down to what you are like um, uh, tracking in the product and what's the best metric. And that's probably the most difficult task for any product team out there. And I can assure you that 60, 70% of the product teams out there don't know what they're tracking. And you're looking at several different things and hoping to actually be they are tracking the correct one. Yeah, I think we'll we'll come back to that in a, in a second in terms of that sort of evolution because I think again to your point, products and managing products like an a thing that you were constantly evolving and trying to understand the impact of your changes. That's sort of new to financial services too. But we'll we'll sort of come back to that in a second. I mean, and I guess Lindsay, like we've we've seen almost the the conversation around you know, friction be one that has continually sort of popped up in in financial services. And I'd say, you know, maybe some of the the sort of trading platforms have strayed over the too far into making it too easy for people to to not only buy products, but but necessarily become a little bit obsessed with the performance of those products. You know, the best advice always with shares is like buy it and leave it as long as you can to, you know, actually get benefit from it. So do you think there is I guess specifically within the uh, the investment space. I mean, do you think there are places where this is going a little bit too far? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think everybody has been observing the rise of the desktop investor, the kind of uh, desktop day trader, and you know, some of the some of the tooling out there. You 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 do have to wonder: is this too easy? Is this a little bit too democratic? Not that that's ever you know, the, the thing you'd start with. But it reminds me a little bit of something I was reading about recently, um, which I've been thinking about even in my own product design, is that you have the parts of your brain that are focused on positivity, on reward and pleasure and happiness, and which uh, that fall under the umbrella of, of like positive feelings. And all of those are it's a little bit like the fast and slow systems of the brain that Dominic was just referencing as well. And when you're thinking, when you're, when you're emotionally engaged on those happy paths, basically your brain is literally in, it's in a higher dopamine state. It's in a higher reward state. It's, you know, you're kind of, you're hitting the coins, you know, in the, 
in the video game, you know, all of that's all happening in a way that's kind of positively and affirming and ratcheting. And when you have negative feelings, um, when you have um, doubt, when you get hit by a lot of questions, or when you get hit by, uh, you know, a question about, you know, tell us about what you want to happen when you die, or, you know, tell us like a thing like that, your brain kind of goes into this other mode. And and, and then what's called, I guess, the, the negative affective with an A system, which is a whole set of things. And it's not as it's not as easy to understand as the happy one. But what's the fascinating thing, and I will get there, I'm terribly sorry about the rambling, but the fascinating thing about the negative affective system is that it is associated with more confidence in your thinking than the other one. So people doubt themselves less when they're sad than when they're happy. And and it took me, I had to read this several times for it to fully sink in. And I was thinking about how like when you are in in a kind of more, it's like cold light of day, you know, when you're in that kind of more sober, reflective, sometimes even um, in the article I was reading, even a bit more, you know, kind of solemn state, you you get much more confident in your thinking processes and you take more time on it. Um, and when you're in that kind of happy mode, you can sometimes just breeze past all of those checks and you end up in a place where you kind of end up a little bit sugar high and a bit overexcited about everything. It's interesting, you know, stimulus for decision-making thought processes and different mental states of those things. And actually the influence that, and, and isn't that an amazing, is an amazing thing, you know, actually you, you sort of think, you know, the work that we all do can trigger those things in people in such mm. an amazing way. It's, uh, it is amazing. Maybe uh, I've <laughs> talked myself around then. I think you've convinced me, Lindsay, we'll stay working in financial <laughs> services. Uh, and on that note, we better uh, take a little bit of a break and we'll be back with you very shortly. But before we do move to the break, we'd love to get you, our lovely listeners, much, much, much more involved in the episodes of Fintech Insider. And to do it, we're going a bit old school on this one. Um, we've set up a Fintech Insider answer machine. So if you want to hit us up with any questions you like, we'll attempt to answer them in an AMA style show in the next couple of weeks. Questions could be pretty much everything you like from styling tips from me on beard culture or whatever you want to do to uh, Simon and how much he loves Pepsi Max, like really whatever you want to do. Just call us on 0208 050 That's 0208 050 Alternatively, if you want to tweet us or email us or send us a voice note, do whatever you want to do. Podcast at 11fs.com is the email and we're pretty much everywhere on social media. So just find us on there. If you leave your name, we'll shout you out and play a message on the AMA show. Can't wait to hear what we get. It's going to be very, very interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick pause We'll be right with you very shortly. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the industry's most open, API-driven, low-code platform for hyper-accelerating embedded finance applications. WaveMaker delivers a rich, drag-and-drop visual studio that fintech brands and financial institutions use for rapidly composing serious banking and financial services apps. 
Developers can easily consume APIs and build in an enterprise-grade environment, leverage custom pre-built components with APIs, logic and UI, or even build out complete embedded finance journeys that your customers can extend or customize. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. All right, guys, we're back. Um, so, look, we've got a nice product at this stage. We've talk, talked about, you know, brand. We've talked about design. We've talked a little bit about gamification. So it's encouraging people to do the right things. We're sort of nudging people in the right spaces to make better decisions. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to do with, you know, the products the build that we're building is make people make better decisions, right? Um, but how do you ensure that the, the product is really sort of light and easy to use? Because, I, and actually, I mean... Eduardo, you touched on this a little bit earlier on, you know, your beachhead as a product is quite simple when you get to market. I don't mean where you guys are at now. I mean, the first thing that you did to when you went to market. And if you look at Revolut, you know, Revolut was a, a travel card, super simple. You know, the the impact from a information architecture pe- perspective was incredibly simplistic in terms of what they needed to do. In fact, actually, when you look at the first version of Monzo, it was basic, like it was super basic. But actually, as that expands out, I mean, making sure that you balance out uh, the simplification of all of those things and how you explain them with the complexity of all of those additional features. I'm sure you're trying to figure out where you put cryptocurrency into your navigation and how it fits into the broader journeys that you're doing right now. But how do you manage that? You know, how do you manage that complexity and still aim to bring about that simplicity in the interfaces in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, we've been talking a lot about like design and experiences, but I think that it always starts with like, what goal you're trying to achieve and, you know, setting some metrics before even like designing the experience, right? And at the end of the day, when you look at the development process of like a product or like a new feature, the design bit is definitely like, you know, 20% of it, 30, 40% of it is like the pre-beginning sort of like the, the, the thinking about it before even going to it. And designs can be changed, can be adapted. It can be that you run multiple A-B tests on a single like screen just to see if crypto can fit on that screen or not. And then, you know, at the end of the design process with the development, if the metrics that you actually set yourself, they match, you know, in, in the actual like live environment, it means that design is working. Otherwise you go back and you change the design again, right? But definitely as your product evolves, there is a question of like, how do you make it as easy as it was on, on day one? And I think that's the issue with any huge mobile app out there. Uh, you know, I was looking at my Facebook app, which I still have, and it's just like 500 different buttons all like spread around. And even in that case, it's still about, it's still about you know, going back to those very basic metrics that you had on day one and seeing if they're still like constant, they're like decreasing or they're actually increasing. And any sort of like successful product out there, you should have got those metrics always increasing. Um, and so, yeah, it really goes back to really be, be super analytic and metric driven. And there are like a plethora of like products out there that they can actually help you do and achieve your goals, basically. Mm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, Lindsay? I mean, we're at a point where the sophistication around applications is getting so great. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm in London for one of the first times forever. I went to order an Uber today. 
couldn't literally figure out how to order an Uber because like apparently since I've been away from London for a year, Uber is now this gigantic super app construct and it has everything in it. I could order a hamburger really quickly, but I can't get to the meeting that I wanted to get to particularly effectively because they've sort of buried the core functionality. So, I mean, in, in that sense, you know, we're reaching a different level of maturity, Lindsay, now where, when it comes to apps being really the the predominant touch point with with customers on this high frequency you know always on mobile capability this feels like it's going to be quite a difficult thing for 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 people to navigate literally <laughs> yes absolutely i mean i think this is where um where the the market's really going to start to differentiate you know there's been a kind of flush of of products that have kind of come in on a narrow on a narrow proposition and then widened it out and now they're suddenly realized hey wait like it was quite good when it was easier to understand this thing when it was just one or two actions available at any one time and so I think there'll be a big differentiation that will really be driven by the brands and the products that understand that quicker and you know whether that's accomplished through actually splitting up uh, the experiences for the user or if that's accomplished through design or clever gamification like in the sense that we we're talking about it earlier I think that can vary I don't know if there's a, you know I don't know if there's any one recipe for success, but um, but that's, it will definitely be a differentiator in the future because even as you go from, you know, that whole, you know, one click and, and car appears kind of Uber experience that essentially the company was built on that on that brand promise, you know, and then, um, you know, into this place where almost you see, and just to pick, continue to pick on Uber as an example, where they seem to be vying to become a super app, there will be, I think, a, a massive whittling down, basically. Mm. It's going to be fascinating. Don't you think that the world is ready for like a super app? In the sense that, you know, the generation that didn't know to use smartphones is already gone. And now we've got mm. like a generation that is actually able to use everything, whatever you put them in front in front of them. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, and, and there are some amazing super apps like in in some markets. I. I don't know if we have one in the UK yet, um, and, and many markets have have some incredible experiences. I mean, thinking about uh, WeChat in China or, or Grab in Southeast Asia, which are just amazing experiences. But they also have very differentiated front doors for each of their services. You know, so if you you don't get confused about if you're going to get a car or a burger, um, you know. So so I think there is that thing where even within the company, the app needs to have the those different paths or, or those different um, magic buttons for the different services need to be differentiated in some way. Yeah. I think, I think it's going to be fascinating to see as well, because obviously, I mean, uh, you know, Dominic, Eduardo, you guys are, you guys are fintechs, you know, insurtechs and fintechs in, in this space, but actually almost uh, through necessity, I wonder whether the the big incumbent organizations will actually have to start splitting these things out because, you know, actually when you start layering, you know, 18 different product cycles into a single application, just through technological necessity, I think roughly the um, regression testing for a big organization would be about three years at that point to, to get their app out every time that they're doing it. You know what I mean? So so the, the, the challenge there from a why can, you know, Uber do this stuff? Why can Revolut aim at this? Why has WeChat been able to do it? Uh, I mean, there is complexity in the interfaces, but people can adapt and learn those things if the benefit of doing it is is big enough. But actually, if the technological underpinning nature of that 
restricts them from doing it, we we actually might see insurtechs and fintechs pull away dramatically from the incumbents because of um, you know moving away from that that debt. I think one one thing that this sort of highlights really, I mean, in in this sense, is these are new problems, you know, and, and new problems don't get sort of solved by doing it in the way that organisation. The, the point that we just said about before, you know, you don't just put a life insurance form with a nice man with a briefcase and send him off to to people's houses, Dominic. You're you're rethinking how these things are, are are being done. But a big part of that is is the people who actually can think about those things, right? So so we talk a lot about, you know, there's product managers and UX designers, but I, I guess sort of focusing a little bit on the 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 UX designer side of things. Um I mean, do you think Really, fintech and insurtech has has brought about a, a different type of role for for the UX designer because it feels more it feels more and more important within the organisations because of the importance of experience within those organisations as well. I'm not sure if I'm necessarily the best person to answer this question because we have no UX designers at Dead Happy, which is a bit controversial, I know, and I guess the reason for that is that we think certainly at the stage of development of the business we are specialist speeds will slow us down um, and speed is so important for us so you know if you have specialists in the team then if there is a, a decision to be made in in that sphere of that specialist people will always defer to that specialist and if that specialist is not available then decisions don't get made so we don't have we we, we try and stay away from specialists as much as possible i mean in terms of ux it, you know it's, it's a circular debate we have as to whether we do need them my view is that everyone's a UX designer. You know, if you're involved in building product, then you kind of have to be really, you know, and we're all we're all consumers of digital products. So we all have some kind of a relevant opinion. Now, of course, some people are, you know, they have more design flair than others, or, or some are better at, at understanding a process. Uh, some are better at writing copy or whatever. But, you know, I, I just don't know, certainly with our business at the stage of maturity that we're at, that we don't need to have those specialists that, you know, at the end of the day, what is a UX specialist? I, I'm not sure I, I could necessarily answer that question. Maybe somebody else could, but um, but yeah, it's, it's it's not something we focus on. Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting you say that because actually the the disciplines are almost the the barriers between them are sort of eroding, aren't they? And it's why I sort of said about product managers to a certain degree as well is that actually. Um, you know, a good product manager kind of has to know a lot about all of these things in order to be able to do them effectively, you know, and actually to your point, I think, um, I think if organizations get so fancy that actually there's a, just a, a manufacturing line of like, you do this and then you do this and then, well, that's kind of getting us back to waterfall really, you know, whereas actually, you know, product managers and actually there's the sort of, I think almost product managers are the evolved thing of user experience architects or UX designers. And they sort of need to have all of this in their their locker in order to be able to do, you know, guerrilla testing to understand how to do that, to not bias it, to create interfaces and test interfaces and have uh, carry the brand from a from a tone and a structure perspective. But it is interesting because, I mean, I, I mean, I'm old enough that when I did my undergrad in computing, it was called HCI, you know, human computer interfaces. And it was like, yeah, we had to worry about a human using these things, you know. But almost the the trends of actually how these roles shifts and changes and what needs to come into the experiences or or what goes off to um, uh, another discipline is almost a again it's a trend, isn't it? But I mean, what what do you think, Eduardo? How, how do you guys set up? What's the 
what's the structure of how do you deliver essentially? I think on this basis, I like two stories to share. Uh, one is an interesting one where like one of our investors, uh, it runs like a consumer app. And what they do is they just go in front of McDonald's, buy Big Macs to young kids and let them test the app in front of them. as a really super like quick, you know, uh, way to actually see if the feature works. The other one is that I agree partially with like Dominic point in terms of like, you know, having the need of like a UX specialist. But it is also true that a specialist is able to grab that 5-10% of like uh, knowledge that normal people wouldn't have. Uh, for example, uh, you know, once I was talking to a UX designer about Emma and our products, and, and this was like two years ago, and one of the main points that they raised right away was like uh, accessibility, right? I, I can say I'm good at UX, I'm, I'm good at products, the product works for like 90% of the people, but I'm not blind. So... I have no idea of how, you know, I can make the product accessible to people that have got those, those needs. So there is definitely like a sort of like early stage startup mentality where, you know, you don't need specialists, but as you grow and expand and you run like a very big organization, so you want to get 99% of people on board, you know, that, that get everything uh, done. So yeah, I wouldn't advise to get a UX on day one, like a UX specialist, but definitely as you grow and you scale, uh, there is definitely the sort of like need to take care of like every single pixel. And that's like a, a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, hire people who have made all the, the mistakes at other organizations and can bring that to what you're doing is uh, is a good way of thinking about it, isn't it? But uh, Lindsay, what do you think? I mean, you've seen sort of a an evolution even with you know titles in this sense in terms of what people do and and whose task it is to be worrying about these things within different organizations so what how, how do you think about that I mean, I mean and for your role as well how do you think about it in the the context of what you do because you'll step into all different types of things to to make pulse what it is mm, absolutely i mean i think i think the strongest case for having having dedicated ux designers is focus. And it's not that anybody has special secret skills that other people can't have or are magically talented in ways that other people can't be. But like, um, I think there's a strong case for for putting putting some investment down as a business into saying that, you know, this discipline is something that we want someone to really focus on. And, um, and as a company scales, like Eduardo says, you need to really, um, you know, to start doing that to get serious about reaching the next level. I would also say, of course, that if you, you know, regardless of what stage you are with UX design, that tools like 11FF's Pulse are fantastic in short in shortcutting the design process. So you get to see, you know, the scope of the market out there and to see what's out there in terms of your competitors and also your kind of hero brands. Um, because, you know, all of it, what's true of every role and every shape of team is that there's never enough time. 100%. I mean, as you uh, as you say, and as we talked about Lindsay before, it's like, um, uh, and actually, it sort of plays a little bit to what you were saying, Dominic. It's uh, somebody's probably thought about the problem you're trying to solve somewhere out there. So, um, you know, still with pride is always a good way to go, isn't it? But, uh, well, I mean, we're going to have to wrap up. I'm afraid. Um, the, the fantastic. Uh, I mean, we love Dominic and Eduardo. We both love both your brands in terms of what you've done and actually how you set it up. Congratulations with the the success of the the companies and where you guys are kind of taking it. Uh, look forward to seeing the cryptocurrency stuff come through, Eduardo. It's going to be fascinating to see where you put it. Uh, unfortunately, though, that does wrap up today's show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about your company? So, Dominic, starting with you. Ah, well, just go to the website, deadhappy.com. Nice and easy. Uh, Eduardo, where can people learn a little bit about you and uh, and your brand? 
Well, if you're in the UK, just type amount the App Store and it's the first result. Uh, it would be the same in the US and Canada. So just feel free to download the app and play around. Very good. And Lindsay, where can people find out more about you and uh, all the good stuff you do at 11FS? Well, definitely pop over to 11FS.com and you can find Pulse under products. And we'd be very happy to hear from you um, and set you up with a demo um, at any time. Very good. And where can they find you lurking these days? Uh, are you a LinkedIn or a Twitter gal? Both, in fact. Um, you can find me under my full name, Lindsay Kistler, on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Very good. Uh, as for me, I'm pretty much all on Twitter these days, so uh, uh, which is odd. I kind of flirt between LinkedIn and Twitter, but uh, but you can find me mostly on there now. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening. If you do like what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Do you know, I was reading them at the weekend. There's some super nice people out there leaving us reviews really frequently. Really love it. But also it really helps other people find the show as well. So thank you so much for everybody who has done that. Keep going. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversations, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, wherever you want to find us. Or email us at podcast at 11FS.com. Uh, we do love getting the old email. It's always good fun. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.